Uh, hope you all are having a good morning. Uh, it's, been, it's been good to be back. Um, I was a little, little stressed driving over because uh, I got out a little later than I wanted to, and I was like, I hope that I can make it, you know, and I quote-unquote made good time, uh, you know, as they say. So um, I want to start off this morning. Uh, I, I got a lot to get through. Uh, I will do my best. Uh, I, I would argue that my spiritual gift might be talking way too long, uh, but I'll do my best to not do that this morning, uh, to su- suppress the spirit and get y'all out of here on time to be able to get to lunch. Um, so uh, it's a lot to say. Um, so let's just, just dive right in. I want to start off by looking at two parables, and I just want to ask y'all three questions about them. They're not trick questions. They're not hard questions. Don't overthink. I don't, I don't want to make it hard. I just want to see where we all are this morning. So in Matthew 13, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, a parable that many of us have heard. So here's my quick question uh, or questions. Who do you believe this man uh, who, who found the treasure, who would you say that this man is or represents? Us? Is, did I, is that what I heard? Okay. Everybody in agreement there? Any dissenters? Okay. Uh, see, I told you, not hard, not trying to trick you, just, you know, quick little questions, just to make sure we're on the same page. Okay, well, if, if the person represents us, then what is the treasure um, that, that this person in this parable stumbles across? What, what would y'all say the treasure is? Okay. Jesus? Yes, no, maybe. Any others? See... I like participation. <laughs> and I've already told y'all that I want to try and get you out on time. But if I have to slow down and ask for participation, <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. What if the man is Oof. We got a dissenter amongst us. It's time to kick her out. All right. Anybody want to go on that route? What if, what if the man that is represented there is actually God and the treasure is us? <laughs> okay. So let's, let's go on the, uh, the now, now we've got two opinions that we've got to work through here. Let's go with the first one that the man is us. So what does it mean to sell everything that you have? Okay. Okay. Does it literally just mean getting rid of physical possessions and that's the end of it? Selflessness? Give our all. Okay. Well, now we've got Miss DeCenter over here. Uh, What if it's uh, God and the treasure is us, then what does it mean that God is selling everything that he has? Hmm. Ooh. We got a little debate going on at the very beginning of this message, and I'm not going to solve it right now. We'll get there. All right. The next one uh, that follows right after that is, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. It's a mirror of this parable that we just looked at. So just to save a little bit of time, 
Uh, anybody want to change their answers for this parable than from the first one, or we just say the answers that we got are the answers we got, and we'll go on? Based on y'all's participation, I'm going to say the answers that we got is the answers that we got, and we'll just move on. All right. I love cafe racers. I don't know if y'all know what they are. Uh, they are the predecessor to modern-day sport bikes. Uh, it, basically, the deal is chop off everything that you don't have to have and still make it rideable. Pull as much power out of the engine as you possibly can. And when this all first started happening, the goal was to be able to do the ton or to be able to get your bike up to 100 miles per hour. I had a dream about 10 years ago. I had an old Honda CX500 that I wanted to turn into a cafe racer because I like tinkering and building and all these kinds of things. Well, I was on a, a website called Do The Ton, a forum, where people share their builds and talk through things and ask questions. And I was looking for a little bit of inspiration. And I stumbled across a, a thread that was, I mean, it might have been 100 pages long, and I just got sucked in. Is hopefully, we'll, we'll just say it wasn't a work day when this happened. Um, <laughs> As far as y'all know, it wasn't a work day. So uh, but I want to read the beginning of this thread, this, this post. The poster's name, his screen name is Swan. And he said, uh, my bike arrived from Texas. I feel like I won the lottery. As many of us often do, I was searching Craigslist for vintage British bikes and parts, because that's obviously what we all do every day. Um, and uh, the, the following listing popped up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Barn find BSA 500 with title. It was listed 20 minutes earlier. My mind raced of thoughts of a gold star. A man named Brad answered. Swan started asking Brad all kinds of different questions. How many exhaust pipes are there? Can you read me the numbers on the frame, numbers on the engine? Like all of these things that he had memorized for this day when this amazing thing would happen that never, ever happens. And uh, after, after a few answers, Swan says, uh, I need your email address. I'm going to give you the full asking price. Consider this sold and pull the ad. Brad was floored. Uh, Brad had no clue what the deal was and why this was going on. So Swan writes, he's, he goes on to say, with my head spinning and my fingers typing as fast as possible, I sent a PayPal payment to a complete stranger 1,100 miles away. A big leap of faith and the adventure begins. About a week later, his, his bike shows up and he, he gets his treasure in person. Uh, he's excited, but to fund this restoration, he has to sell some other project bikes that he has. And he lists off three bikes right off the top of his head that he had to just get going. One of them, he said, was about 94% complete. Imagine that, those of y'all that are tinkerers, that you get a project and it's 94% complete, and you're just like, it's got to go. Like, this is how much this bike is being to him. So he gets about $5,000 from selling these other three bikes, and he just casually mentions that he'll probably spend about $2,000 um, just on the crankshaft and other motor parts alone, being able to restore this bike. Now, I'm sure that you're all interested with this right here. How is this the, the, uh, the lottery bike? How is this the thing that shows up? He, he is so excited to be able to get this and get his hands on it. Sometimes it's really hard to see what, why other people value the things that they do why things are treasures to them. I'm sure that y'all have had this, you know, where somebody's like, oh, look at this amazing thing. And you're like, that's, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? And like, that's, I love motorcycles. I, I saw that, and I was like, the way that he was, he was typing all this stuff out. And then I saw that, and I was like, all right, dude, have fun. Like, it's your money. So 
I want to uh, I want you to hold on to that a bit. We are going to um, we're going to be talking about this treasure in Matthew. What is this treasure? What makes it so valuable? But to do that, we got to do some zooming out. I mean, we, we started off just looking at three verses, two parables, but we're going to have to back out a little bit um, to really be able to see what's going on. First off, here's some things that you got to know about the author. You got to know about the audience. You got to know these things that you start looking into what's going on. First thing that we know is tradition tells us that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. The Apostle Matthew um, wrote it. Uh, and uh, his audience is without a doubt a Jewish audience. Matthew quotes from 41 prophets uh, in his gospel more than any of the other gospel writers do. Um, his use of bringing in other Old Testament stories, uh, allusion, illustration, all of that stuff is through the charts. Uh, Jewish writers during this time, especially in our Old Testament, uh, love the use of numbers uh, to be able to teach, to support, to, to have symbolism. Matthew's use of numbers is insane. You could just spend time going through his gospel and just looking at the numbers and what they can mean, and that could be probably a year-long study just in and of itself. Uh, his gospel, there, there's not really a better way to say it, but it is, it is the most Jewish gospel that we have. When you look at who he is, who his audience is, and the way that he's writing, and I will say this, it is a work of art. Like, if you look at Matthew and you're just like, eh, I'm telling you, you oh, I wish that I could impart to you the amazingness of this gospel. Okay, so when we meet Matthew, he's a tax collector. Now, this is pretty important. He's a tax collector for Rome, the occupying army. So not only is he a traitor to his people in that he collects taxes for the occupying army that they want gone, which, by the way, for them at this time, most of the people are wanting a Messiah to come along to be a military leader to kick Rome out so that they can have their land back again. So he is a traitor that is helping this people that they desperately want gone. Not only is he a traitor, but tax collectors would use the might and force of the Roman army to be able to skim a little off the top to be able to live quite well, to steal from their countrymen. So not only a traitor, but use the power of this evil empire that is holding them down to be able to rob from his countrymen. This is why as you read through scriptures, you're going to see that there are sinners and then there are tax collectors. So let's just do a little thought thing for a second. Um, just, we don't have to say out loud, just think in your mind, eh, who's the worst sinners? The categories that you can think of. We don't need to name any politicians or anything, but just like the categories that you think of, all right? When you look at that, drug dealers, rapists, mob boss, people who abuse children, whatever list, serial killers, whatever list you want to create for the Jews, they're like, oh yeah, we'd rather have them than the tax collectors. The tax collectors are so bad, so immoral, so horrible in their minds, they get their own category. We track it with this. This is who Jesus picks as a disciple. He's one of the 12. Now, I think that we miss a little something in not knowing how disciples are generally picked during that time, um, uh, the time of Jesus. It is not easy to become a disciple. We, we read through our Gospels and we see that, you know, Jesus just goes up to people and is like, hey, come follow me. And they do. And we're like, why do they drop everything? This seems a little weird, you know. But here's the deal. I, I want to go through the education. Maybe some of y'all have heard this. I want to go through the education system during the time of Jesus and how 
what you had to do to become a disciple. So first, all Jewish children, male and female, about the age of five, would go to school, and this school would be called Beit Sefer. And in this schooling, they would focus on, um, let me get my, my stuff right here, oops, um, they would focus on learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and, they, by, and by learning, I mean they would spend time memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Eh, we're somewhere around there. Okay, so this much of the Bible, starting at the age of five, you're going off to school and just working on memorizing, knowing what it said, knowing, your, knowing the Word of God. Um, and there's all kinds of things that we could go into the history of the Jewish people as to why. But for them, they realized that if they were going to be successful in life, if they were going to do anything, if they were going to keep up this covenant with God, then they had to know his word. Okay. So at about the age of 11, all the girls would go home and most of the guys, only about 10% of the guys would be able to go on to the next stage of school. Let's, for our purposes, let's call it high school. Um, the best of the best were able to go on. And in this stage of schooling, it wasn't just the Torah that they were focused on memorizing and learning. For them, it was all of the Hebrew scriptures. For us, as we have it put together in our order, Genesis through Malachi, they're memorizing. They're, they're able for somebody to just start quoting uh, something out of Amos chapter 2, verse 3, and they stop halfway through and they need to be able to pick up and just keep on going. This is, this is their education. The best of the best go on to this. Okay, well, after high school, you know, you got college. So at about the age of 14, you'd have Beit Midrash. And what would happen is you're talking a very, very small percentage of people are able to go on to this. And basically what happens is they spend time studying what different rabbis have to say, uh, trying to figure out the different teachings, because just as for us uh, amongst Christendom, it, it wasn't any different for them. that They would have different rabbis that would look at, look at texts differently and have some different interpretations with it. And so they would go and they would apply to a rabbi and they would say, I want to be your disciple. And this rabbi would grill them. And this rabbi, like I said, might start quoting Amos 2-3 and then just partway through stop and just sit there and wait for this applicant to just quote and quote and quote and quote until the rabbi steps in, however long that takes. The rabbi might start asking them some trick questions, trying to figure out what they know, but here's the crazy thing. They don't want to know if this, this kid sitting before them can learn what they know. Because believe it or not, being a disciple doesn't really have all that much to do with your knowledge. The important thing is a rabbi has to be like the disciple. I mean, a, the disciple has to be like the rabbi. So the rabbi wants to know, not can you learn what I know, because clearly you've made it to this part in school, like you're pretty smart, but can you do what it is that I can do? Very few made the cut. Most of them were told, look, I know that you love God. I know that you, you love his word, but you just don't have what it takes. Go home, learn your family trade. Um, you know, keep on serving God. Very few would be able to make it. It is estimated that there were about a hundred disciples following rabbis during the time of Jesus. It was a very select group that was able to do that. Now, with that background, let's look at Matthew and his calling, his becoming a disciple. You know the way that it's supposed to happen. Let's look at what happens in Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. 
based on what we know, and I don't mean to be uh, heretical when I say this, but Jesus got it wrong. Based on everything we know about how this process is supposed to happen, Jesus got it wrong and Matthew knew it. This is why Matthew, like when you read and you're like, why did he leave everything? Well, let's walk through this. First, Matthew's working a job. If he's working a job, then that means that at some point he either dropped out of school, he wasn't good enough to go on to the next stage of school, or he applied to be a disciple under various rabbis and they all said, no, you're not good enough. Somewhere along the way that happened. So he knows he's not good enough to be a disciple. No rabbi wants him. Thing number two, students go to rabbis to apply. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to him and says, hey, I want you to follow me and to be my disciple. Jesus is flipping this thing around. This is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to happen. And and if we're unsure about things, let's also recognize this. Uh, He was a tax collector. What business does a tax collector have being the the disciple of a Jewish rabbi? Like all of a sudden, Jesus is, is putting his reputation at risk. People are like, don't you know who you're, like, what? Okay, so let's pick up where we left off. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, notice that little break there, came and ate with him and his disciples. By the way, have you ever paused to try to figure out what this dinner party looked like? Like, I don't know about y'all, I, I, I didn't grow up in church, and I, I grew up with a family and in situations that maybe you would say aren't ideal at times. And so um, I think sometimes we can be like, oh, they're eating with Jesus. And so it's like, hey, would you please pass the potatoes and everybody put on their nice tie and all these kinds of things. But like, I'm thinking about Matthew and the types of friends he would have. I had these friends. I still have some of these friends. I still have some of these family members. And I'm guessing it didn't go like, can you please pass the potatoes and all language was clean. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, anyway, just to, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they put on their best clothes and they watched their language because the rabbi was there. I don't know. So uh, just a, a thing as I'm trying to think through it. So when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now I have another question. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's not just breeze past the word of God. If you were put in charge of directing this scene in a movie, how, how are you going to direct it? Like, do you think that Jesus heard it and then he's like, I got to go up and I got to whisper to the Pharisees, hey, like, we're trying to, we're trying to work with these guys over here. Like, can you, can you call them? Like, yes, I, they're sinners. I got that. Or do you think that maybe Jesus, who didn't really have a problem offending people, said, yeah, I know this, but I came for the sinners. See, I believe that Matthew clearly knew what Jesus thought of him. And I think that Matthew knew that Jesus got it wrong when he called him. And it impacted every reason why he wrote his gospel and how he wrote his gospel. Have any of y'all heard of uh, a literary device called a chiasm? And not from people at this side of the room who know me. Has anybody heard of this literary device? Okay. This, <laughs> there's a shirt that I want to buy that's, uh, well, I'll tell you later. Sorry, I got to stay on track. I told y'all, I'm not going to talk a whole lot except for what I have to say to get y'all out of here. All right, so chiasm, it is a literary device to where you're, you're, the back half of what you're saying is a mirror of the front half of what you're saying. 
It, an author doesn't tell you that you're reading a chiasm. Um, the, the deal is, in, in our world, we like to have truth said. I mean, think about if, when you have to write a paper. You come up with like your thesis statement. You're like, this is the truth that I'm going to defend. And then you spend all this time giving all the reasons why this thing is truth. This is what we like. The people that God chose to write our Bible, the Hebrew thinking people, had a much different way of thinking and writing. For them, they believed, yeah, I could tell you the truth, but man, if you search for it, uh, if you do some work, then you'll own it. And it'll mean a lot more to you. So they would write in such a way to basically make a treasure map where the center of what it is that they're saying is kind of like X marks the spot. And you have to start trying to figure out what that center is, start doing some digging. And it's never going to contradict the, the overall thing of what they're saying, but it is going to illuminate it in a way that you would have never, ever gotten before. Um, because I like food, I want to give you all a visual representation of a chiasm. Uh, this, uh, put the cheeseburger up. Uh, this is a great representation of a chiasm, all right? So you start on the outsides. You got, you got your bun. They don't look the same, but they still are both buns. So not everything has to be the exact same thing when you're writing in a chiasm. And then, interestingly enough, there is condiments both at the top and the bottom. The bottom has ketchup. The top has something like maybe mayonnaise, ranch dressing. I don't know what it is. Maybe they were feeling you know, experimental that day. Then, uh, from the bottom again, you have two other toppings that come from the garden, you know, your lettuce and tomato. And then up top, you got two toppings that come from animals. You got your bacon and your cheese. And then in the middle, you've got a perfectly cooked, juicy burger that is your treasure. Now, some of you might be saying the bacon is the treasure and this thing is flipped wrong and all that sort of stuff, but just go with me for a little bit that this is a perfect representation of a chiasm. Now, if you can just imagine that it's scripture that's all doing that sort of stuff, we're on the same page. Does that make sense? Kind of? Okay. So, <clears throat> I believe that the whole gospel of Matthew is one giant chiasm. Which, by the way, <laughs> um, we're talking about a time where there's not computers, there's not like typing and like backspacing. Like, this is some, the genius, I'm telling you, the genius of Matthew to be able to have this story and to put it in this thing where there is a treasure in the middle, and he just... Mind-blowing. Okay, so what is this treasure? What is this map that, that, that Matthew has put together? Now, I'm not going to go through the whole chiasm this morning because, for one, we don't have time. But two, I don't want to rob y'all of the joy of sitting down and reading Matthew. And now that you know that there's the possibility of some of this stuff, that you start looking for some themes that Matthew is doing and how it's getting to the middle. But I, I just want to start off and show you a little bit. So in Matthew chapter 1, you clearly have the introduction of Jesus. Um, you also have with that, uh, Israel is represented from the standpoint that you have um, uh, the, the genealogy, you know, you've got all of these, these people throughout the big wigs of, of Israel's history going on there. Uh, you have women that are mentioned in this genealogy, you have Gentiles that are mentioned, and then you also have that Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, if you go to chapter 28, the end, remember, it should be able to kind of fold on itself you're going to find something really interesting. Well, for one, yes, you're going to find Jesus. Well, he should be in the Gospels. But then you've also got the 12 apostles. Where does this number 12 kind of show up? Well, the first time we see it is there's the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to be thinking of this as representing Israel. You have women who are at the tomb who are there when Jesus says, and he sends out all the disciples. You have an aspect of the Gentiles being mentioned from the very fact that he says, go into all the nations to baptize them. Uh, the nations are going to be somebody other than the Jewish people. And what does he say at the end of his gospel? 
He says, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. God is with us. And interesting little side note that I think sometimes we miss because we put all the gospels together. Uh, Matthew doesn't record an ascension of Jesus. Doesn't mean that Matthew didn't believe that he ascended, but Matthew is clearly trying to drive home the point. Jesus is with you always. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't left. So we got, we got the beginning of a chiasm. Maybe this is all just coincidental. Okay, uh, in chapters two and three, Jesus is worshiped as king. The, the wise men come and they bring their things. Well, in chapter 27, Jesus is rejected as king. We know that up on the cross is, you know, king of the Jews, and he is rejected from this. In chapter 4, Jesus faces three temptations alone out in the wilderness. Uh, and in chapter 26, he is in the garden. Yes, he's got, he's got the, some of the disciples with him. But if y'all remember, they were like me. They liked their naps. And uh, they were sleeping. Jesus was basically alone. And three times he prayed to the Father that he wouldn't have to go through what he was getting ready to go through. But not my will, but yours be done. And so he overcomes this temptation alone, these three different temptations. Now, again, I told you I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to jump right to the center because I want to leave something for y'all to be able to dig and to enjoy. Hopefully you see the pattern of a chiasm emerging. And if, if I'm right that it's a chiasm, that means that there is a center part of this, this gospel that is a treasure for us to dig through. I believe that that center is chapter 13. And if we start to read through it, we will start. Here's, here's what's also amazing. There is five major teaching sections. That, that Matthew records of Jesus uh, in his gospel. Um, the center one of these five, the third time that he's teaching, is chapter 13. Uh, so again, we've got Matthew. Matthew is a genius, the way that he puts all this stuff together. Anyway, um, Matthew 13 is a, is a chapter that is full of parables about the kingdom. But something that we need to make sure that we don't miss as we go forward, sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it is so easy for us to think that all of that has to do with language dealing with when our lungs stop filling up with air. And if we are familiar with Matthew's gospel, then we know in chapter four that Jesus stepped in and starts saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you go back uh, go, or go a little bit forward into the Sermon on the Mount and the disciples are like, hey, can you teach us how to pray? What's one of the things that he says to them in chapter six? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how his followers are supposed to pray. The kingdom of heaven, yes, it is not yet, but it is also now. It is very much the things that are in front of us and how we're supposed to be living and, and ushering in this kingdom. So as we think about chapter 13, go on with this. I hope y'all are following all of the breadcrumbs. I know I'm, I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there. But as we go through this, we get to the first parable in chapter 13. It's a parable of the, of the sower or the soils, however you want to look at it. And it's weird. I think we've gotten so used to just reading it. But I mean, who throws their seeds just anywhere? I got, I've gotten into gardening. Mm -mm, I'm not just throwing seeds anywhere. Like you take time to make sure that the soil is right. You put your fertilizer, like you do all these other kinds of things. If you're going to do the work, you want to make sure, and your seeds are valuable. Like you don't just don't want to cast that stuff out, but the kingdom of heaven is one where seeds are just kind of thrown anywhere. Let's see, let's see what sticks. Let's see what takes. Next, we get to the parable of, of wheat or the weeds or the wheat and the tares. I want to read this one uh, together with us. So in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, Jesus told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, uh, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. Now, if the first parable wasn't strange enough, the second one gets a little weird. Because if any of y'all have done any gardening or anything like that, you know that there is an aspect to like, you hate weeds. <laughs> and those things get in there and you're pulling them. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't want them to take over. You don't want them to mess up all your good work. And this farmer says, no, just let them be. As you look at this picture, there's something that, that we don't know about this part of the world that I think uh, once we know it illuminates this parable a little, little bit more. When wheat and tares are first growing, it is very difficult to tell them apart. They look almost identical. Wheat doesn't really change its appearance until it has matured, until it has ripened. And when it does, its fruit becomes heavy and it causes it to actually bow over, where the tares continue to remain standing tall and proud the whole time. Now, there's a whole lot that we could do just digging through that parable alone, but Jesus is saying with this that his kingdom is such that he says, no, I'm, I'm going to risk letting the tares, letting the weeds grow along with my fruit. Because I don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're doing to come in and accidentally pull up some wheat. And I wish that somebody would have taught me this early on because I hate to say it, but when I look back through my life uh, as a Christian, there's plenty of times that I've thought that I was the gatekeeper. And I've probably pulled some wheat before I had a chance to mature. I read a book a few years ago called Reaching the Unreached, and he said a, he said a line that uh, was challenging that I, I kind of don't like, but he said, you know, if, if your church doesn't include people that make you uncomfortable, then you're probably doing it wrong. When you look around, do you have the people in your church? Do you, are you trying to reach the people? Or if the people showed up, how would they be treated? If an exotic dancer decided to show up one Sunday morning, how she treated. If a convicted felon that everybody knows uh, in the area has gotten out of prison and decides to show up to church, how are they treated? And what if they're here for a year and never make a decision to follow Jesus? Do we know for sure that they're, that they're tares and need to be pulled out, or are they wheat that's taken a little bit of time to mature? Because let's not kid ourselves, we all at one time were the tares, and it was a miracle that we ever became wheat. It wasn't by our own doing. <clears throat> so we go on as we, we go through these parables, and then we see the, the mustard seed, uh, we see the yeast, that this kingdom is supposed to be one that just spreads uncontrollably, provides comfort. And this brings us to the two parables that we start off the morning, the aspect of the man looking for his treasure. And, you know, there's that, that saying, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And that's exactly what's going on here. I think that understanding these two parables makes Matthew's whole gospel make sense. 
But before we go any further, we have to, we started off with a debate. We got the dissenter over here, uh, one of the reasons why I've enjoyed having her in the ministry, um, who said, oh yeah, what, uh, what if the man is God? And then we've had a lot of other people said, no, what if the man is us? And here's the deal. Every commentary I've been able to get my hands on says that that man is us. So if that's where you land, you're in very good company. Um, I, I actually don't go there, but let me explain to you why. Matthew uses numbers. Matthew uses numbers in a beautiful way. Let me just go through just a few quick ones how, how Jewish people would sometimes use numbers. Three is the number of community. Let's go to Acts 2. Uh, how many people were baptized that day? 3,000. Okay. Now, here's, here's the question. Did they count every person? Was it literally 3,000? Was it 2,900? Was it 3,200? That's not important. What's important is three is a number of community. 1,000 for the Jews is a number of completeness. There was a complete community of God that came together that day, receiving the Holy Spirit to go off and change the world. In, in the Old Testament, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob representing the community of God. You, in the New Testament, you have what we oftentimes call the inner circle, Peter, James, and John doing the same thing amongst Jesus' apostles. Four, it's a number of the Gentiles because the Jews are the center of the universe, you know? And why would you not think that when God, he could have gone to all the people in the world, but he chose your people to give his word to and to, to work at changing the world. And so as you go out to the four corners of the earth, what do you find? You find all the other people. You find all of the Gentiles. Seven is going to bring to mind completeness. You're going to go back to creation. You're going to think of rest and Sabbath, a number of God. Twelve, you're going to, this is a kingdom number, the 12 tribes of Israel, the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. Sometimes numbers in the Bible are simply a number. You know, like four people showed up. All right. Sometimes like that's it. And anybody who goes off and like tries to unlock some sort of stuff, that's like, I know who the next president will be because I saw these numbers and I did some math. Like that's not biblical. All right. But there is an aspect of looking at numbers and then being able to support because of what they have come to mean symbolically. Okay. So here's where this, this starts to matter. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, there are 12 parables that start off in some form of fashion of, and the kingdom of heaven is like a man, dot, dot, dot. Of those 12, 10 of them are unquestionably the man, in one case a woman, are unquestionably God, the father or the son. God in some form is unquestionably that. Which means if Matthew with these two said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man, and that man, he has switched his formula to making it us. He, he has totally changed what he's doing. Instead of, and he's talking about kingdom. He's using a kingdom number of 12. Rather than sticking within his formula of what he's trying to do, he's all of a sudden switched it. Now, he's got the right to do that, and there's other things that he could be doing, but I would just be asking the question, why? Because if it's 12, then there's another thing that's going to be saying, he's going to be like, hey, slow down and start looking at all of these parables and put them all together because they're all going to stack up. They're all going to start teaching and illuminating each other. I'm telling you, a work of art. So when I look at this, how does this illuminate the, math, the, the gospel of Matthew? If the man is God, the treasure is us, then we should start to be able to see how this is going to inform what Matthew is doing. If this is the treasure that he wants us to find, and by the way, this kingdom is one where the message is spread far and wide, wherever. It's a kingdom where the wheat and the tares live together. 
And where the wheat realizes, this isn't my field, this isn't my farm, I don't own this, I'm not the gatekeeper. I'm just here to help and do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. I'm just here to produce my fruit. And I trust the owner of this field, of this crop, to be able to pick when it needs to be picked. We understand that this kingdom is one that spreads like a wildfire. This is the kingdom that, if it's God who is the man, that makes him absolutely giddy that he gets excited to be able to find it when his will starts to be done and who it's done for and how it starts to change lives. Now, <clears throat> if this is right, we should start to see some things. Uh, in, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, it starts with a genealogy. Great part, right? Y'all are like, yeah, that's my favorite part of the Bible, the genealogies. Oh, man, you would not realize how much amazing stuff is buried in these genealogies. I'll just go with one thing. Um, here's, here's why Matthew's uh, genealogy starting off uh, his gospel is so amazing. Because he did a horrible job. Based on the rules, as a Jewish guy writing a genealogy, he got it completely wrong. Here's what I mean by this. There are things that we just breeze over, we don't think anything about. When you write a genealogy back then, you never ever mention a woman unless you absolutely have to. So if you're ever reading a genealogy in the Bible and a woman's name pops up, that is not by accident. The author is trying to get you to slow down and they are teaching you something as a result of that. Now, there are four women that are mentioned. Hmm, I wonder if there's anything going on. Maybe there just happens to be four, but for Matthew to be so particular in the names that he chose, why does he choose four? Well, if you go back and look at these women, uh, none of them are Israelites, which would mean that they're Gentiles. Although Jewish tradition says that Bathsheba was, but she was still married to a Gentile. So even if we want to give them that, that she was an Israelite, there is still a Gentile connection in these four women. And here's the other thing. When you start looking at the lives of these women, um, they are not the kind of people that you want to put into the genealogy to show the pedigree of your Jewish Messiah. Let me give you a quick example of what Matthew does here. In Matthew 1, 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you realize what just happened there? See, he could have said whose mother was Bathsheba, but he wants to call back to the history of what happened. It's almost like Matthew is saying, Hey, y'all, um, how, how did we get Solomon, our wisest and richest king, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Um, king David, our, our best king, a man after God's own heart, rather than going off and fighting like he was supposed to, saw another man's wife, was attracted to her, brought her into the chambers, um, committed adultery with her, got her pregnant, and then he needed to cover up his sin. So Uriah, the Gentile, who was fighting for the Israelite people and was a great man, uh, David brought him back from battle, tried to trick him to be able to sleep with Uriah, to be able to cover it up. That didn't work. So um, yeah, he had Uriah killed, murdered, so that he could just go ahead and marry Bathsheba and try and cover this whole thing up. <laughs> David is, I mean, he's taking jabs. How, how, did, how, did we get, how did we get this great king? How are we getting the Messiah? Don't, don't start thinking too highly of yourself as you go through all of this. In this genealogy, we have Gentiles, women, incest, prostitution, a Moabite, adultery, and murder. For somebody who's trying to show the pedigree of the Jewish Messiah, Matthew sure did not seem to know what he was doing, unless he understood something about this kingdom that Jesus is putting together, something about this kingdom that God is making. 
William Barclay says, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus. Like, he, th- this is not what you want to have in there. Now, real quickly, after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus starts performing miracles. You know, just doing what Jesus does, going off healing some people. Until you realize that Matthew puts these miracles out of order chronologically, on purpose, and he's trying to group things together. The first thing that he does is he puts a grouping of three people who are healed. Three is a number of community. Is this coincidental? Maybe. But if it is a thing of community and, and Matthew's trying to draw attention to something, then what kind of community is Jesus building in this new movement? Well, the first person is a leper. They're unclean. And if you read this, here's what happens. Jesus goes and he actually touches him to heal him. Now, we might say, oh yeah, but he's Jesus, all is good. Jesus was still under the law, which means that Jesus just made himself unclean. And think about this. When's the last time this guy had any physical touch? When's, when's the last time anybody saw him as a person, as a human being? This means that Jesus gave up his ability to go into the temple and worship until he could make himself ceremonially uh, clean again. All for this, He could have just spoken and healed this guy. They said, no, I'm, I'm going to heal the unclean. Next up, we have a Roman centurion. We've already talked about the Romans. And here's the deal. Jesus calls him out because he is blown away by this man's faith. He, he's one of the few times that Jesus is surprised. Can you imagine that? Your faith is so, such that Jesus is surprised when he runs into you. I hope that that can be said about me. And to round things off in this if it's a community, a new community he's building, is Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. And no faith is mentioned. Not to say that she didn't have any, but for whatever reason, Matthew chose not to record any aspect of faith or anything of her asking, just Jesus simply healing. We have unclean person, we have a Gentile that shouldn't make it in, and we have a woman who didn't really have a whole lot of value in the religious leader's eyes. And this is who Jesus decides after the Sermon on the Mount, after he, decides, after he describes what this new kingdom is going to be, this is the community that he starts putting together. Um, with the religious people saw somebody to be avoided they saw somebody who was born in the wrong side of town the wrong family whatever the case may be but jesus had no problem being around the unclean being around the gentiles being around women he had a ton of women who were following him in his ministry i wonder why somebody who looked and simply saw value who said, you're made in the image of God. you got the divine spark and there's something amazing about you. The Father, I, the Holy Spirit, we knit you together. You ever seen somebody knit? There, there's thought put into it. Each one of us, there is a thought behind what God is doing and putting us together. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This has always been the heart of God. And all throughout Matthew, you're seeing this. And here, here's what I want the takeaway for y'all to be today. You, could, you can disagree with me on whether or not, like I said, if you think if after all of this, you think that the, the men in those two parables uh, are us, you're in good company. That's just about every commentator that I've been able to find. But if that man is God, then it changes some things and how we should look at stuff. And the thing that I want to encourage you to do is to see the treasure. And I, I want you to open up your eyes and to be able to see the treasure in all kinds of different places. For one, have you ever looked in the mirror and thought that God got it wrong? Have you ever looked and been like, man, I'm not good enough. How in the world can God love me? 
Whatever the sin is that you struggle with, whatever the relationship, you know, with somebody that just keeps on being this, this thing that you can't overcome, and you're like, man, if, if people sitting next to me knew, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be welcomed here. Here's the deal. God didn't get it wrong. You're the treasure that makes him absolutely giddy. You're the treasure where, I think there's a verse that some people maybe know. It's, it's an obscure one, uh, John 3, 16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like this is the message that we've known, but we oftentimes forget. Be willing to see the treasure that is in you. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. He, he made an amazing person with a divine spark in, in you so that you could join him to be able to co-create and make this world an amazing place. Matthew, uh, I want to do one last thing with numbers. Trust me, I am wrapping up. Um, I told you that Matthew puts his miracles uh, out of order chronologically. Uh, Matthew puts his calling as a disciple chronologically out of order. If there's anything that he knows, it should be when he was called to be a disciple. So it wasn't accidental. Here's what's really interesting. If you start reading from the Sermon on the Mount and you start looking at direct encounters that Jesus has with individuals, uh, Matthew is the seventh individual that Jesus has an encounter with. Uh, this number of completeness, of rest, of being able to rest in God and to go back to the creation story and to say, hey, your value is not in the stuff that you make. I want you to rest and be in me because your value is simply in who made you. You're valuable because you're mine. Yeah, you might have been a tax collector. You might have been the worst of sinners and all those kinds of things. But you're mine. And I love you. And I don't think that it's a surprise that later on in Matthew's gospel, we have some words that have encouraged a lot of us over the last hundreds and hundreds of years. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe Matthew just ran out of stuff to say, and he put himself number seven. Uh, but I think that there's a little more going on to that. Now, let me, let me just say this. If you've been following Jesus for a few years, um, maybe you've been like me at times, and uh, you felt like a gatekeeper. Um, maybe you've put up roadblocks. And here's the thing. When Jesus ever got mad, it was, it was at people who were supposed to know, were supposed to understand what the kingdom of God was about, but put up roadblocks for people. Uh, Jesus, Jesus went outside of the temple and made a whip. Like, we sometimes were like, oh yeah, Jesus whipped people or whipped up people. Like, it wasn't a spontaneous thing. Like, he went in, he was ticked because they were getting in the way of the Gentiles being able to worship. He went outside, contemplated what he was going to do, sat down, made a whip. This was premeditated. The things that made Jesus angry were people getting in the way of the unclean of the Gentile, of the woman, of the people that society had forgotten or the religious leaders thought weren't good enough. If that's you, I'll just say, man, there's no better time to repent and to be able to join in what God is doing. If on the other hand, you've been somebody who's been clearing the way, who's been making a path and trying to get people as close as you can to God, keep on doing it. Uh, keep on reaching out to people. Be able to see the treasure in the people that nobody else sees. The early disciples did this, and they passed it on in such a way where people in the early church could write this. This is a 
quote from one of the early church fathers who said, Be generous to the blind, the feeble, the lame, and the destitute. They may be useless to men, but they are serviceable to God. Join Jesus in bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Uh, I heard somebody recently say in a video that I was watching that so many people are so worried about transcending this earth that they forget that God has asked us to transform this earth. You know what I mean? Yes, the kingdom of heaven is, is to come, but the kingdom of heaven is right now. Get about doing the work. Uh, I started off this whole thing talking about a motorcycle. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to show you this. If you remember from earlier, the motorcycle was, was rusty. If you can put that, that picture back up. Uh, this is what it looked like. Well, after Swan spent some time, uh, a lot of money, uh, this is what he ended up coming out with. If you can go to the next picture. Uh, there's no way that I saw that under all that rust. What I would have seen is something that just needs to go to the junkyard. But Swan was able to see the treasure where nobody else was able to see it. And he was absolutely giddy about it. And then eventually he was able to actually, if you want to show the, the final picture, this is him taking it out on the road. And although we see him driving by, I'm pretty sure because of having ridden some motorcycles before, that for one, he's probably pretty happy, but I can only imagine how happy he is after he was able to do all the work and to bring out this amazing thing where everybody else would just see junk and he saw the treasure. I'm pretty sure he's smiling as he's riding. I pray that you will see the treasure. Whether you need to see that in yourself, whether you need to see that in the people that are sitting next to you, or in your neighbor that really annoys you, or in the, the people that just make you angry because of how far away they are from God. Even those people were knit together. Even those people, God wants to do something with. Go back and look in our scriptures. Moses, he was a murderer. Paul, who wrote over half of our, our New Testament, he was an accessory to murder. He held coats while people stoned Stephen. God can do some amazing things if we'll let him. So join in, see the treasure. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for being uh, an amazing God. Uh, you're good. Um, you have a, a patience that I can't understand. Um, Father, I pray that you'll help us to see the treasure, uh, to see it in ourselves, to see it in the people around us, and that we will get about doing the business of bringing your kingdom here. And it's in the greatest name of all that we pray. Amen.